Chapter 16 of Zara de Cruel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recording are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simona Perego. Zara de Cruel by Joan Conquest. Chapter 16. It is an hour's poison, Arabic proverb. If Ralph Trenchard had been a guest instead of a prisoner, if he had been the man's blood brother in crime instead of an intruder likely for a space to become their leaders by marriage through the love madness of the shaking's daughter, more solicitude could not have been shown for his amusement and welfare in the days which preceded the great feast at which he was to be tricked or publicly coerced into a betrothal with Zara. As a rider and a shot, he had won the man's hearts. As a foreigner who menaced the peace of the community, he stood in hourly danger of his life, if he had but known it. He did not know. With his thoughts given entirely to the memory of the girl he loved, lacking, through her death, the spur necessary to send him hot foot back upon the road to civilization, he had unquestionably accepted the explanation Zara had given him of the mistake her man had made, and which had ended in the disastrous battle and had set himself to live but for the passing day. He had longed for adventure, he had found adventure, and when the novelty passed off and the sort of haunting with the cheetahs, racing across the moonlit desert, pitting his skill with rifle and horse against the finest riders and shots in the world, lost its ever, then he would make tracks for its homeland, where the fair, in somewhat lacking in spice, is figuratively and literally less calculated to upset the digestion. Having forgotten the European half of Zara's parentage and lacking woman's intuition and Nicker's psychological perception, he put her almost extravagant hospitality down to the friendliness arising out of her friendship with Helene and her meeting with him in the past, just as he put the man's apparent friendlessness down to the perfect and world-famed hospitality of the Arab. He failed to grasp the fact that their intense interest in the sports arose from an almost savage determination to beat him, or to notice the ring of triumph in their shouting, or the bitterness in their eyes when hater they triumphed or failed against him. He came to look forward to his daily meeting with the man in the company of their mistress, well content in his British detestation of all outward show of feeling, to hide his grievous heart under a cloak of seeming indifference. It was an adventure, and would add, as all adventure must, if a taste of salt is to be left on life's palate. He loaded the luxury of his dwelling, and longed to ask the meaning of many things, amongst them the cause of the dog's hatred for the Arabian woman, and of the empty sockets in the face of the man he encountered so often on his path, but with whom he had not spoken. But believing that his adventure must soon end, and knowing the Oriental's dislike of investigation into what concerns him privately, he asked no question, in which he shone his winson. Truth, in an answer to a straight question, being about as rare in the east as moss in the desert. He rode and betted and hunted and ate and slept, with waiting for something to fix his departure, ignorant of the fact that the land, watched closely day and night, a prey to an overwhelming secret fear, bravely endured the discomforts of a restricted life, 
on the far side of the jacking rocks all he could see from his door. He had almost forgotten Zara's criminal reputation, had grown accustomed to her continual presence and well-meant, if tiresome, ministrations. He thought that the day of sport and night of feasting and dancing had been arranged to celebrate a reunion with the handsome Nubian against whom he had found himself so often pitted in the sports. He turned to look for Al-Assad as he raced at Zara's sights across the desert at the head of an hundred men, and carried out of himself at the magnificent sight, shouted as he rode, taking no more notice than they did of the extraordinary appearance of the sky to the southeast mistaking the distant phenomenon for a part of the sunset, which was making a blazing, fiery furnace of the sky in the west. Zara and Ralph Trenchard had fifty men, who, their white cloaks streaming behind them in the evening breeze, shouted and louted as they rode, separated by the patriarch, Al-Assad, and Bolegs from fifty of their betrayed, who, their white cloaks streaming behind them in the evening breeze, shouted and louted as they urged their Haitian, or dromedaries, to their swiftest pace. To mix camels and horses in a hunt, or at any other time, is a dire, foolish and fruitless task, giving rise to pitched battles between the beasts and broken heads amongst their riders. But Zara's men looked forward to the inevitable fight which decided the question of the horse or the camel's precedence over the secret path at the end of a day's hunting. It gave them all such a chance of paying off bad debts and whole scores and such an appetite for the meal prepared for them by their patient, downtrodden womenfolk. Al-Assad sang at the top of his golden tenor voice as he guided his magnificent dromedary from Oman with his feet and with his spear prodded the cheaters, with which they had been hunting between the bars of the specially made cage strapped on the back of the dromedary he led. Bowlegs led another dromedary, upon was a shedded or baggage saddled were piled the gazelle, ostring and bunchings of kangaroo rat, which constituted a not particularly good bag for a day's hunting in the desert. The patriarch, looking as Master Moses have looked if he bestrode a camel in rounding up the trapezing tribes of Israel, rode between the two men, with whom he conversed as best he could for the louder and shouts of the men and the rumblings of the camels. He looked at Ralph Trencher and Zara as they rode together just ahead and shook his head. "'Tis best for the horse to mate with the mare and the white with the white," he said, for the mule is but a beast of burden to which is apportioned a grievous fear of blows, and the half-caste is but a thing of scorn even to the pure-bred donkey boy of the cities. Al-Assad stopped his sinking and stared towards the west, as Bolegs made answer as best he could for the sounds which proceeded from his camel's throat and which denoted fear. Yeah, oh, father, he shouted in gasps. What afflicted his heavy beast? The half-caste is of no account, as we have lately learned through the death of the great Sheikh in Ahmed's firstborn by his white wife. Matics danger treats, for behold, tis a thrice-accursed child of sin trembles as he runs. 
and the offspring of Iona too would have the blood of three countries in its veins. So twere well to fear the tree before it bears fruit. And may Allah, in his mercy, give me a cavern in paradise in the stead of this bag of shivers I now bestride. Al-Assad shaded his eyes from the glare of the evening sky and pointed towards the west. What seest you to wonder? A string of ostrich, a fleeting herd of gazelle, or you so hunting with his dogs? The patriarch, with eyes like a hawk, looked in the direction and louted. Tis blind Yusuf with his eyes, followed by his dogs. They fly like the wind towards the mountains. From whence do they come, and for what reason do they fly like the wind? Al-Assad make a trumpet of his hands and sent a call ringing across the miles of desert sand, upon which Ralph Trenchard, whose horse was in a sweet of terror, turned and looked at him and in the direction in which Zara was also looking. Yusuf had evidently heard the call. Against the strangely angry-looking sky he stood out in black silhouette, with a team of dogs racing like the wind at his side, and the dump out pillion-wise behind him. A strange couple truly, the one with the sight, the other with the speech, rendering each other's service, until, when together, they each spoke and saw with the other's vision and tongue. They rode together now, and the yacht pointed backwards and then forwards, and they stayed not their flight for a moment, neither they did try to change their course so as to approach the mistress. Al-Assad looked behind to where the yacht pointed and gave a shout of fear, upon which strange sound Zaran and Ralph Trenchard and their tight body of men looked back and, in a desperate effort, tried to check their beasts. They might as well have tried to stop a runway engine as horses and camels fling before the dread Simon, which advanced slowly behind them like some great, heavy, purple giant of monster of the underworld. The Simon, a column of poisons of gas, a twin of the cyclone, with note in common with the Sirocco, a slowly moving column, whipping in the air into the gas, as violent and hot as toad blown straight out of the mouth of hell, a phenomenon peculiar to the tropics desert places, falling up the desert wayfarer, over him and gone, in the passing of two or three minutes, if he happens to be favored by the gods, in fifteen if he lack dogs his path. A terrible, writing, twisted scourge of scorched hair, with a center as calm as a lake under a summer sky, and uh, as full of poison as a scandal-monger's tongue. If the wayfarer should not be mounted upon some four-footed beast, handled with such speed and endurance as will carry him out of its range, then there is only one course left, and it is for him to lay flat upon the ground, to cover his head, to scrape a hole in the sand into which to bury his face, and to hang on to his breath and comment in his spirit to his maker, until the fell monster has passed over him and proceeded upon his death-dealing way. Zara was not a leader of men, or the mother of her children, or a child of the desert for nothing. She turned and raised her right hand, and smiled at her men with the shouting enclosed in a ring about her, the horses on her right, the camels on her left, whilst Al-Assad used his dromedary to her side and called her mayor's altar, 
so that she rode between him and Ralph Trenchard. It's almost certain that, she shouted to Ralph Trenchard as he pressed his horse against the air mare, as they tore like the wind in the direction of the mountains, they could not even see. Almost certain that is if we cannot outride it. The horses are... She gave a sharp cry as a great puff of scorching wind blew over them, then shouted to Halasad, Those on horses are to follow me, twenty yards ahead. They are to turn with me and ride back to the camels to stop their flight. When they meet, they are to flying their cloaks over the camels' heads. The camels are to be got to their knees. Those who ride horses are to dismount and to let them go. She was magnificent in her courage and beautiful in her seeming solicitude for her men, whereas, if only the truth had been known, she was merely reveling in the fight against almost overwhelming odds. She turned to Ralph Trencher and held out her hand as she swept forward at the head of the fifty horsemen, who rode with their knees, holding their cloaks in their hands. Turn, she cried. Though their words were drawn in the thunder of the gallop and the moaning of the wind, which blew like a furnace from the purple cloud close upon their hills. Fight them back, fight them, follow me. The terrified horses were turned almost in a line, and headed by Zara, with Ralph Trencher and Halasada on either side, charged the camels. The impact was terrific. The two lines of huge beasts met with a crash which sounded to Ralph Trencher like the splitting of rocks, as the fifty horsemen fought the camels back to a standstill, flinging their cords over their heads. Dismount, shouted Zara, as she rode from hand to hand, whistles, rowing and bending, the column of poison gas crept slowly across the sands. Let the horses go, get the camels down, dismount for your lives. She swung from the saddle and found her way amongst the seething beasts to where Ralph Trencher helped to force the camels down by kicks and blows upon the knees. The heavy boot, she gasped, bring that camel down, then lie beside it, and, and she swung and choked as a blast of poisons wind blew right across them, then staggered closer to Ralph Trenchard, as, choking, gasping, she brought the camel to the ground with heel of his heavy riding boot upon his knees, and fell. He fell beside Zara, his arm across her. Holding his breath for one perilous moment, he lifted his head and looked about him. Camels lay humped together, their long necks stretched upon the ground, their muzzles buried in the sands. The men lay alongside, their heads pushed under the beasts having flanks, their faces wrapped in their cloaks and pressed into the sand. Far out in the desert, tails and manes flying in the scorching wind, the horses fled, close together, as a thought pursued by thousand devils. The sound of their hoofs upon the sand came faintly, like distant thunder, to be lost in the morning of the dread Simon as it advanced slowly, greeting, bending, flinging its purple draperies heavenward like some gigantic dancer seen in nightmare. It was a pillar of horror against the night sky, in front of which fled life, in the wake of which lay a path of dead. Then Ralph Trenchard, with heart hammering blood, 
thundering in his ears and brain beating as though it must break the skull, struggled to his knees. The world, like a molten mass of red-hot lead, seemed to wait upon his shoulders, a band of white-hot iron to encircle his chest, a sponge soaked with boiling water to lay upon his face as he struggled to get out of his coat. He fell forward upon his hands, the sweat pulling down his agonized face. He raised himself and with a mighty effort pulled his coat off. The fringe of the hair had been lifted to loose hands of the man's cloaks and tore at the coat he grasped between his teeth as he pressed close to the Arabian girl, who lay motionless to the, on the ground. He laid himself down close beside her, so close that his cheek touched hers and lifting her head. With infinitive pain spread the coat upon the ground and wrapped it about her head and his own head, even as the men had wrapped their cloaks and held the hedges tight as the full weight of the Simon's poison filled center passed over them. Favored of the gods, they lay for two minutes under the scorching weight, two minutes in which the camel, driven mad by the chickens which fought with freezing in their cage upon its back, scrambled to its feet and fled into the center of the Simon there to drop that a few seconds in which it seems to the men that great steam rollers of red hot steel passed backwards and forwards over them as they prayed to allah the merciful and held their breath for an eternity of time which was counted in one hundred and twenty ticks of the watch upon the white man's breast they lay long after the pillar of horror had passed incapable of movement their heads pressed under the heavy flanks of the camels which lay there motionless and were quite capable of lying there in their camel-headed foolishness until another simum should overtake them the desert stretched peacefully under the glittering stars when Halasad stirred, pulled the clock from about his head and his head from under the camel's flank. He stretched his hatching limbs and felt his troubling head, logging huskily as he kicked the nearest camel into a consciousness of life and lifted his nearest unconscious neighbor and propped him against the camel's back. He sat for a while filling his lungs with the desert hair, then rose stiffly and crossed to where Ralph Trenchard and the Arabian girl lay side by side, as still as death. He fingered his dagger as he looked at the white man, then loathed and shook his head and removed the coat from about their heads and twined his slender hands in the woman's hair then removed Ralph Trenchard's arm from about her shoulders and lifted her up against his heart. Mine, he said gently, then loathed softly as he looked at the men and camels lying as though dead, and with the touch of perservity which came, perhaps from the mixings of the blood in his veins, bent and laid Zara in Ralph Trenchard's arms. Just as he regained his senses and, struggling to his knees, lifted her out of pure solicitude against his shoulder. There was nothing, however, to tell her that his arms had been placed upon her simply out of anxiety for her well-being and not in love, so that when she opened her eyes and looked up into his handsome face, 
bent down so near her own, she naturally concluded that the game was almost won. She looked at Al-Assad with eyes devoid of expression, but got to her feet at the smile in his and sat down upon the camel nearest to her. Kick them, Al-Assad, all of them, men and beasts, to see if there are any alive, she said curtly, anxious to be rid of him, and sat and indifferently watched the efforts of men and camels as they struggled back to life, and merely nodded at the Nubian when he reported that one man and two dromedaries would not respond to his darbing. She had fought for her men's lives when the anger threatened, but rather for the love of gaining a victory over so dire a foe that for any anxiety she felt for them, and now thirsty, hungry, alive but uncomfortable. She did not care one piastre if they or the camels struggled back to life or remained where they were to die. She wanted to get back to her own dwelling. She wanted to ride there alone with the white man who had held her in his arms, at least, so she thought, sheltering her from death. She frowned as the men sewed drunkenly upon their feet, logging stupidly as they staggered amongst the camels. Hassad, she cried sharply, showing how little she understood of the white man's character by so shamelessly exposing her want of pity and consideration for others. Bring two camels, thine for our guest and yon for me. You can't return with one or two or more of the Breton upper one aging, clustered like bees about a honey pot if she stopped and got to her feet and laid her hand on Ralph Trenchard's arm. Camels, she said briefly. There was no sound. Nature was there anything in the desert to be seen. I think you are mistaken, replied Ralph Trenchard. She spoke tersely, its admiration for the girl's courage suddenly turned to a great dislike through her colossal behavior towards the visible suffering man. By Jove, you are right, thought. Headed by Yusuf, with his eyes pillions wise behind him, fifty men mounted on camels and leading fifty more camels suddenly appeared out of the shadows in the far distance. Zara frowned and cursed under her breath at being twirling in her intention of riding back to the sanctuary alone with Ralph Trencher. Splendid man, Yusuf, he said, watching the approaching camels, absolutely devoted to you. I suppose he raced home in front of that poisonous pestilence so as to get you a relay of camels and emergency rations and remedies. You are lucky to have anybody like that about you, don't you think? Zara didn't answer. She crossed to Al-Assad, thereby giving Yusuf the opportunity he wanted and Ralph Trencher to surprise for his life. Guided by his eyes, the blind man brought his camel to halt within a foot or so of where the white man stood, with the fifty brace of camels deployed in the semicircle behind him. He bent down and searched with his hand until he touched her up Trencher's shoulder. Then he bent lower still. Elena, he whispered, and pressed his hand down hard as Ralph Trencher started. Elena, he repeated, put his finger to his lips, straightened himself and rode, with much shouting, towards Zara followed by 50 brace of grunting camels. End of chapter 16